Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeza de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hey everyone, random start to today's episode because I'm recording this intro on Roberto Clemente Day and I have to shout out one of the goats in baseball history because this Boricua was out of this world inspiring. He was the first Latino inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1973, which means he was the first Boricua inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He was a 15-time All-Star, over 3,000 career hits. He was a World Series champ in 1960 and 1971. In that 1971 World Series, he was also named the MVP. He was also the National League MVP in 1966. 12 gold gloves from 1961 to 1972 and a four-time batting champ. In addition to his accomplishments on the field, he was also an activist for racial equality and baseball players' rights. An admirer of MLK Jr., he spoke out frequently against racism in the United States during the civil rights movement. He also denounced the segregation he confronted during spring training in the Jim Crow era South and pushed for the Pirates to make changes to better accommodate black players. He continued to give all that he could give, even up to his untimely death in 1972, when his plane crashed on a humanitarian trip delivering aid to earthquake victims in Nicaragua. He was 38 years young. While his life was cut short, his legacy continues to live on in athletes, activists, and humanitarians to this day. How we can continue the legacy of those that came before us is a great question for us to ask ourselves as Puerto Ricans. Whether it's aspiring to the example left by Roberto Clemente or continuing an art form practiced for centuries like our guest on today's show, Ali Arrocho, we are capable of building upon Boricua brilliance. In fact, I'd love to hear how you are building upon or honoring the legacy of Puerto Ricanos that came before us, whether that's in big or small ways. Hit us up at Paseo Podcast on Twitter and Facebook and let us know what you're up to. As I just mentioned, Ali Arrocho is on the show today. We're going to talk about Vejigantes, how she makes Vejigante masks, transitioning from the tech world to making her art full time, and her experience as an artist amidst COVID-19. Let's jump into the interview. This is the Paseo Podcast. It is August 14th, but the date doesn't really matter because it's a podcast. So you're going to listen to this whenever, wherever you are. We have a guest with us today. Her name is Ali Arrocho. She's an artist. Welcome to the Paseo Podcast. What should our audience know about you? Hi, I am Ali Arrocho, and I am a folk artist. I mainly create vejigante masks. Vejigantes are a folklore character from Puerto Rico and I create them out of coconut husks. I am also a painter, a sculptor. I dabble with clay 
and uh, sometimes even algorithmic art because I have a software background. I study also Puerto Rican folk music. There's many different kinds of yeah. folk music, but my emphasis is in bomba. I am all about continuously learning about the country that I love. Right on. Cool. Well, super happy to have you on the show today. Definitely want to talk about the Gigante masks. But first, mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about geography. So you're living, <laughs> in, you're living in Utah right now. One, why did you decide to relocate there? I know that there's like close to 10,000 Boricuas currently living in Utah. Mm-hmm. Who, I think it's like the American Community Survey. Um, but there's about 10,000 there. Was, was the Puerto Rican community in Utah some, the reason you decided to, to migrate there? I was in Puerto Rico until I was 23 and moved to North Carolina um, because of job purposes. Like I got married when I was 23 and like got on a plane uh you know living living the dream I guess. <laughs> um and my my spouse got their dream job here mm. in utah and i'm i'm pretty good at geography if you give me if you give me a u.s map i'll be able to do like all the edges all around yeah. <laughs> and then i know what's in the middle technically but i don't know exactly where things I, I now know, I now know, yeah. but I didn't. And I remember my, my spouse told me, hey, I'm applying to this place in Utah and it looks really promising and I think we might end up there. And I'm like, what's in Utah? <laughs> and where is it? So I like went onto like Google Maps and <laughs> typed Utah and I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, there's like a lot of access to these other really cool states that I've heard of. Mm-hmm. And that I know more about, but I didn't really know a lot about Utah. So I I did learn that, like, once I got here, I love how gorgeous it is. Mm. And the biodiversity and just um, the dry air was new. Mm-hmm. I miss the humidity so much, but there's, there's a certain charm to having dry air, too. Um, and really, I, it was kind of like, a, I'm going to tag along and we're going to embark on a new adventure kind of thing. Uh, but I've warmed up to Utah. Okay. And the, the Puerto Rican community is small. Mm-hmm. It's growing. Um, and we're just trying to be a part of it. You know, there's no other Vejigante mask makers here. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but there are other Puerto Rican artists and I've, uh, I've connected with other people that are into folk music and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's nice. Puerto Ricans are warm wherever we go. I think one thing that adds a lot of warmth to any household, any community space is art. And to know that there's a nice artist community out there in Utah, man, it fills my heart with joy. I love Boricua art. I want to talk a little bit about one aspect of your artistic talent. Can you give our audience a little bit of a brief history? You touched on it a little bit, but a brief history of the Vejigante masks. What, what, what are they? Why are they significant? Okay, so I'm trying to figure out how long I want to make this story because <laughs> I could talk about Vejigantes for a yeah. <laughs> very long time. Vejigante masks are a symbol of resistance to assimilation on behalf of the wearer. The Vejigante character originated in Spain and it has like these sort of like racist origins because they used to represent demons 
they looked like demons, but they used to represent the Moors, which the Spanish had defeated. And then they would wear these masks on a parade in the festival corpus. And they were then followed by these like symbols of Christianity that were kind of like shooting them away. Mm-hmm. Colonization, am I right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they brought their traditions to Puerto Rico. And in Puerto Rico, when the Spanish colonizers took over, they like they were oppressing Africans and indigenous people. And they were having these similar festivals. And they would make the people that they were oppressing act as those demons. Mm-hmm. So usually these masks in, in, in Spain were made out of paper mache, but in Puerto Rico, especially in the northeast part of Puerto Rico, they started making them out of coconut husks. Why not, right? You have this thing that's kind of spherical, mm. and it, you can hollow it out and slap some paint on it and make it look cool, make it look like a cool mask. So the people that were made to take these roles of demons saw that as an opportunity to express aspects of their culture that they could otherwise not access. Mm -hmm. So that's why it was a resistance to assimilation because it was like, okay, I'll take part in your traditions, but I'm going to do it my way. And so that's why the coconut masks are these like hyper colorful um, masks that resemble some of the masks that we see in West Africa. In what I have researched, I haven't exactly pinpointed where they come from, but I have some ideas. Um, and the, the more similar ones are from that West Africa region. For those listening, if you don't know the history about the Moors and España, it's a fascinating, <laughs> dark, sad history. I definitely encourage our listeners to learn that history um, to really get some much needed context. But the Vegantes, to your point, have evolved so much over time. What do you feel today the Vegicante masks represent to Boricuas? I think it's a fun, loving, mischievous character that is always like dancing on the sidelines of a bomba, a bate de bomba, or plena. Mm-hmm. It's usually, you usually see it Puerto Rican festivals. Puerto Rican festival here, they're all over the place, all over. And we have a right. few it's people like, dedicated to them too. Yeah, and if you yeah. go to, to um, Puerto Rico, it's like you, and, and you're like in old San Juan, you're walking down the street and there's like music in every corner, right? Yeah. And the chances are you're going to see a vejigante dancing around and trying to amp up the crowd. It's always a lot of fun to see them around. Um, we talked a little bit about the history. We talked a little bit about what the gigantes mean to the Boricua community currently. Let's talk about you. Why did you decide, of all the things to create, to dedicate time, energy, talent into, why did you decide this type of imagery to produce? I've been homesick ever since I left in 2011. And part of my process of dealing with the homesickness was to connect with my island somehow. I was reading lots of history, looking at Puerto Rican art, looking into Bomba. I realized how little 
I knew about Vejigantes. I remember like being at school and being told, oh yeah, Vejigantes are these folkloric characters. They're always like having a good time in festivals. Let's make a mask. It's arts and crafts say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember making a mask. I didn't even make a coconut mask I made a paper mache mask which is more like festival style and those are um, typically made in Playa de Ponce which is the southern part of the island and the way that we did those was we blew up a balloon and then we do like the paper mache around it wait till it dried and then paint it on it whatever but then I kept looking at the Loisa ones and I'm like why don't I know anything about Loisa Vejigantes. Mm. And I went through this process of like guilt and shame. Like, am I even really Puerto Rican? You know, like all of this mm. stuff that a lot of Puerto Ricans, once they start digging into their history, like feel that way, especially Puerto Ricans that have either lived all of their lives in the diaspora or have moved away from the island, right? And so I just started doing research and I was playing around with some polymer clay and I'm like you know I'm gonna make some mini masks and I made them and I made them for myself and it was just this process that was all for me I hung them on the wall and everyone loved them seemed to love them and I didn't think much of it they hung on my wall for a very long time until Hurricane Maria happened so that was like fast forward several years after I made those first Vejigantes feeling the despair and impotence of being so far away from the island and not being able to do anything. I was, I had my software job and I was like burning out. I needed to connect with making art. And I also needed to find a way to make myself feel useful in aiding the situation back home from afar so I was like I'm gonna make a bunch of these and I'm gonna do a charity event I joined a festival and I sold my masks and just like donated all the money that I made from them and I was like I have a full-time job I'm just doing this on the side if I don't make any money or sell anything I'm not gonna lose anything like this is more of like a healing activity for me I just hope that you know someone (laughs) is interested in them and they were a hit everyone loved them people responded so well to them i sold a bunch of them i was able to donate an okay amount of money (laughs) to uh, a local charity that i trusted then i was like wait a minute i think there's something here i think i want to do this and then the the gigantes turned into this sort of symbol for me that resistance to assimilation spoke to me because I had been trying to navigate being a Latina in the US, trying to like really separate how I presented myself to Americans and how I presented myself to my Puerto Rican community. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. And I kind of embraced my Puerto Ricanidad and just went with it, eventually leaving my job and doing this full time. I, I definitely want to touch on your your old job because uh, I find that part of your life very very fascinating as well. 
But before we get into that, I want to talk to you about this Slug Magazine article I read that you were featured in. Yeah. And I want to say it was from this past March. It was about a showing that you, you had. So this is just before the pandemic. Um, and yeah. you, were quoted, you were quoted in this article. I'd said, I, I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but you had basically described it as, as a rite of passage. So like mm-hmm. you said, like you, the work, the showing, this was like a, a, a rite of passage for you. Can you say a bit more about that? What did you mean by that statement? I think that the, the context where I said that was because they were asking me about some ideas I had about somehow merging technology and folk art. And they were expressing some concerns about like, what would that look like? How do you think that folk art, traditional folk, folk artists would think about that? I was trying to say that whenever I have these ideas and I entertain these things, I'm like thinking about what I need to do to earn the right to use traditional art in a different way. Mm-hmm. And the rite of passage was learning the traditional methods of creating vehigante masks and this kind of folk art in general so that I could then experiment with it. I think there's also like something there about like a rite of passage, all of this using vehigantes as a symbol for my own resistance of assimilation um, and for my own healing process of feeling impotence of missing my, uh, my family. It can be seen as a rite of passage for me to say, like, hey, Ali, like, you're, you're as Puerto Rican as you can get, you know, that connection, you can be far away, but that connection's never going to go away. And, and you keep it alive within you by doing this, but also by sharing the history and culture with other people. So you get to this rite of passage moment, and then the pandemic hits. What does that mean for your art now? It was... I think I think I'm picking it back up. Yeah. Right now, it there was certainly a grieving process because I did feel like, hey, I'm having all these opportunities. I had mm-hmm. the the show that you read about in this Slug Maga article, mm-hmm. Isla. Then I had a, another show that was postponed due to the pandemic. There were festivals that I regularly attend, like Living Traditions Festival, is a folk arts focused festival it is just it it was just a shock right I mean like many other people face this but I I, it just felt like I was all of a sudden stuck Mm -hmm. and I didn't know I didn't know how to adapt quick quickly I or perhaps I did but the shock was sufficient that it took me a while to to get the motivation to to do it. I'm certainly finding ways to adapt. I, uh, there are a lot of local and nationwide virtual shows that I'm trying to kind of like put up in a list and lining up some proposals and, and stuff. I'm, I'm now working with a friend and, and doing little collaborations as a way to not only move my art along and you know, in terms of sales, but also to connect with people because isolating has been hard in that way too. I don't know if that necessarily answers your question, but... It does. I think a lot of people can relate to that, this feeling of isolation, this feeling of, okay, what do I, what am I going to do? Can I do anything? And then 
trying to reassess and problem solve almost on the fly. Like, okay, how do I kind of push through this? Because let's be honest here, I don't think we're uh, going to see an end to this pandemic anytime soon. Um, so it's kind of this make or break moment where it's like, okay, well, we have to figure out a way to move forward somehow with the backdrop of, of COVID-19. Right. And I think the key is to kind of like to try and spin a negative experience into an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So my Isla show had an opening, was pretty successful, and then it hung on the walls of the Sugar Arts Space Warehouse for a month and a half. And no one saw it, right? Because the opening was on March 5th, and then on March 8th, 8-ish, we were already getting all these messages of, oh, this is getting bad. We should probably not go out. So I wasn't able to sell a large portion of the art that I had been working on since January. Mm. But then, and that added to the stress of what am I going to do now, right? I had this show that was supposed to be this great opportunity and no one was able to see it. Mm-hmm. But then I had this like stack of inventory and I started just sharing it on Instagram mm-hmm. and they like people started responding, responding to it so well. I would sell them in a matter of minutes. And I was like, okay, so I have all this inventory. I guess I'm just going to start sharing things on social media. And I wasn't even able to get through them all. I was already getting like made to order requests and stuff like that. So I was at the, I just started sharing my art, but then it turned into, oh, people are responding to this in a certain way. What am I learning about? how to sell my art purely via social media and on the internet and then started to change the strategy altogether. Yeah, that's dope. Did you, did, so let me ask you this then. So it sounds like you, you figured out the perfect alternative using utilizing technology to, to really get your artwork out there. And bring in a little bit of, a little bit of cash too, which helps, which helps. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. Let's talk a little bit about technology, though. So you studied, you studied, you got your BS in computer science. So you go to college for this, the pandemic hits. Did you ever get like a moment where you're like, hmm, maybe I should go back into the computer science world, into the tech world? Totally. Yeah. There was definitely a time, especially at the beginning, when there was just so much uncertainty around it mm-hmm. that... I told my husband, I'm going to like ramp up on programming again, study um, for interviews. Because I don't know if you know this, but software engineers go to, through a pretty rigorous interview process. And I haven't programmed in a year and some change. And I mean, I know I can still pick it up and I could do it. But yeah. I need I, I needed to pr- practice it. So I started practicing programming again, mm-hmm. like in a 1.5 month into the pandemic, right? Um, and it was with the purpose of revamping my resume and like getting back out there. Cause I didn't know, I was like, if, you know, if 
if my husband finds himself without a job, then what am you know, I want to have a fallback. I want to have a plan B. I want to be secure in, in our finances should this get really bad. But I have a wonderful partner and he encouraged me to, to wait. We were okay. I'm usually, I'm a warrior and I like having like plan A, plan B, plan C. And he was like, we're fine. We can make it, you know, several months out let's wait and see how it goes and once I started getting my masks out and I got that response I was like no you know I I needed to wait I needed to kind of like ground myself figure out what was going to work out and then find a way to stay doing what I love to do there's a reason why I left software and I'm doing this full-time and I'm, I'm really happy with what I do Programming is a language in and of itself. So not not yeah. like not practicing it for a year. It's kind of like that. I guess like kind of like a bike. Like you start doing it, it starts to kind of come back to you. But if you don't use it, you start to kind of lose it, and you have to relearn a little bit. Yeah. So I can only imagine what was going through your mind. So, I mean, so many moving pieces. My goodness, I'm happy that things ended up working out, and you got your art yeah. online. Like that's such a dope. That's such a dope way to navigate this craziness of the pandemic but you did mention that you left programming for a reason what made you want to get your degree in computer science and then what made you want to divert from that path I I actually didn't start my education like computer science from the get-go I was always a person who had a lot of interests we had we're talking about that before I was into math, I was into education, I was into marketing, I was into art, I was into science, all of these things. I just like learning how things work. And and I had a hard time at the Universidad de Puerto Rico. I was like jumping from major to major. I had the opportunity to move out with my partner to North Carolina. And I took that and I kind of dropped out of college. I was young. I was thinking, I'll figure it out, you know, it's fine. I've always been pretty, like, resourceful. I've always been pretty good at getting a job. I was like, let's do it. It's an adventure, right? My husband, he's, he was a PhD student, and I was, like, around all of these people in academia, and I had a little retail job, and I did, like, some things on the side. I always had, like, little side gigs and whatever. And I felt like, I want to prove I'm smart. I want to prove I'm smart. I want to have a paper and get like a badass job. And at that point, I was like 24 or something. And I just went back to school and I decided I wanted to do math because I thought math is like a renaissance degree. If I decide to go to grad school, I could do it in anything with a math degree. And if I want to get a job, like I have some flexibility in what jobs I can get with a math degree. So I was like, great flexibility, prove I'm smart, I'm going to do math. Mm -hmm. And then I took a computer science course and I loved it. I loved how I could do math-like things, but also be creative. And then I learned, wait, I think this is the real Renaissance degree. And my husband's actually a computer scientist. He's a computer science professor at the University of Utah. And I 
at first I was like, I don't want to do what you're doing. I want to do my own thing. <laughs> so I was really like hesitant about switching to computer science. But then one professor came to me and was like, I think you should consider switching. And I did. My husband gave me a hard time about it. I was like, you listen to other people. You don't listen to me. I'm like, see, but they're not biased. You love me. It's different. Oh. <laughs> um, but then I, I finished computer science, loved it. I loved uh, programming. I would program games for fun. It felt like this perfect balance between art and science to me. And I went into the industry. I got a software engineer job. And I got burnt out for different reasons. The long hours, toxic work environments, male-dominated field being a double minority in the workplace, just like different little things that kept adding up. And I, I started actually doing art. I got a studio. I was paying for my own studio while working in software engineering. I, had, I would work 40, 40 hours uh, a week in software and 20 hours a week in art. And I would like go to bed at midnight, leave my studio at midnight every weekday but I was so happy making art. Yeah. And then I realized, I think, I think there's something here. And I think that when something feels really good, we should listen to that. Despite what other people may think, despite all the effort that you've put into another thing, mm -hmm. if something feels really good, just go for it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I was able to do it. I saved up. I gave myself a timeline. I was like, okay, Ali, you have 18 months to prove to yourself that you can do this. <laughs> what I did was good enough for me. It was proof enough for me that I can do this. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, Give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's p-a-s-e-o-p-o-d at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. I do want to talk a little bit about current events happening. We've seen an uprising, uh, especially led by activists, our young people. Uh, a lot of this has been bubbling to the surface, but really, fe really felt like it's, it's hit this peak moment after the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others, 
And so we've just seen mass protests, we've seen rioting too, and this larger call for equity, for justice, for equality. It's made a lot of people from artists to giant corporations start to rethink what does representation look like to them and rethink some of the things that that they're doing in their day-to-day or week-to-week business. For you, like from one light-skinned Boricua to another light-skinned Boricua, when looking at like this Afro-Latinx art form, you know, how do you, how do you navigate and process your role in, in, developing, in developing your art, knowing its, knowing its roots? That's a, that's a really good question. I, I actually had a whole process of reaching deep within and like understanding in general, just mm-hmm. ideas of race in the U.S., in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. what my role in systemic racism is, was. I also questioned what it meant for me as a pale Latina to create this art, to sell it, to learn it from Black folk artisans back home and come to the U.S. and sell it. There was a lot of questioning whether what I was doing was right whether I was entitled to do it. It ended up being an, an affirming process. I was taking some Bomba classes in, during quarantine, and one of my instructors were talking about negritud, mm-hmm. our blackness as Puerto Ricans. And she was saying, I don't care if you're as white as a piece of paper, you need to connect with your negritud, Puerto Rican. And you need to affirm it and you need to express it and share it and respect it. That was the start of my feeling that I think there's something else. Like, I think that I should continue to do this work. But now the question is how I'm going to do this work. And as a pale Latina, I think that we have a responsibility to this work that is proportional to our privilege. I think that we need to talk about the history of these masks, their, like, their historical legacy, but I also need to talk about the legacy of my art. Who did I learn from? Where does my style come from? What inspires me? And the answer to those, I'm going to share them with you. The answer is there's two master folk artisans in the town of Loisa, Puerto Rico, which is the northeastern town that I was talking about earlier. The man that has mentored me directly is called Selele. His full name is Wilselino Pizarro. And he's an excellent artisan. Salele taught me how to open up coconuts with a machete. So I have my machetes in a corner here. So what you do is you take a whole coconut. So for those of you that don't know, the coconut is actually tiny. And that's what you usually see at the supermarket. But then it's, it has this large husk. And that's why these masks look big. It's because it's the husk that we make the mask out of it. So you have to be really careful about opening up that husk and removing the coconut without losing the structural integrity of the mask, of the husk, so you can make your mask. 
then you go into a carving process. I use exacto knives. I use, honestly, sometimes I use like whatever knife I can get my hands on. If you see, you can like actually go on YouTube and look at Castor Ayala carve a mask. He just uses a knife and he just like goes in there, and, like flicks out the pieces. It's like, it's unreal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not that smooth. Um, and sometimes like hands hurt. I've sometimes used power tools, like hand saws and stuff like that to help because it can get really intense. Mm -hmm. So I carve them up and then I cover the roughness. Sometimes if I want that smooth finish that these masks have, mm -hmm. I cover them up with some spackle, like the kind that you put on your wall. Yeah. And then you wait till that dries and paint them up. You sand and paint and glaze. And then actually those, those horns that are on the masks on my wall yeah. are actual palm tree branches. I have some palm tree branches here that Salele graciously donated to me because I don't have access to palm trees in Utah. <laughs> um, <say>. so, wow. <laughs> yeah. Palm trees. Oh. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's funny. Yeah. You have no idea what people manage to grow up here. Yeah. It's insane. But <laughs> so I use dowels um, and I've received you know, comments from people that are like, oh, but that's not a real vejigante mask because you're using dolls. And I'm like, listen, folk art evolves, mm -hmm. right? People move around and keep traditions alive with, with what they can find. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of folk art, right? Mm -hmm. I get to talk about vejigantes in different mediums because it's what I have available. And the stories and the legacy is what's important. Mm -hmm. That is the part that needs to remain intact. It doesn't matter who makes it, it doesn't matter with what, as long as those stories are straight. And it almost feels like every vejigante mask you make, whether you're using different tools or at a different point in your life or the materials that you use to develop it, each of them kind of have their own unique story that all kind of connect to the same legacy. There's a lot to be said about honoring that, that history and honoring those roots. I saw on your Instagram, in addition to the Vejigante masks, and in addition to some other artwork you had on there, um, on your Instagram story, you were actually sharing poems. And it looked like maybe you were starting them throughout the pandemic. Was that, was that something <clears throat> you were doing to practice good mental health? Was that for other people? Why were you doing that? It was for my mental health mainly. Yeah. I think that for many reasons. So... Throughout the pandemic, I realized I have like a voice box condition mm -hmm. and I was losing my voice and I was having a lot of difficulty breathing and talking um, on top of everything that was happening and that like brought on a lot of stress. One effect that had was that I realized I couldn't sing like I usually could and I love singing bomba. And so I was, I was mourning the ability to sing like I wanted to. I can still sing, I just need to bring it lower. But I, I was really bummed about it and I was like, I need to get some feelings out. I need to express, express something with my voice. Mm -hmm. And because I can't sing, I looked at poetry. And poetry is, I have a really interesting history with poetry because 
I always felt like I couldn't access it. Like I couldn't always understand it. Like maybe I wasn't smart enough for it, which I know is silly. It's a silly thought. Mm-hmm. Poetry's for anyone. If you're listening and you haven't ever read poetry, go pick up a poetry book. You will think. Anyway, I started looking specifically for Puerto Rican women poets. There's not a whole lot of women poets that are well known. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's tons of Puerto Rican um, women poets, but I, I start just started looking for, for poems that I could, I could speak through having lost my voice. I wanted to use someone else's words and find healing through them. So I started recording them and I was like, I don't care if people like it or not. And I got like, it was, it had a good response. I hadn't gotten back to it cause I've been, you know, on and off with the voice thing. <clears throat> but um, it's something that I intend to pick back up. And I enjoyed reading poetry so much. I just, I just bought a new poetry book actually. I'm excited for it to, <laughs> to get here. So I can read more off of it. I think that's a great thing. I think that's a good thing for our listeners too. If people are feeling like cooped up in their in their homes or their apartments and just don't know what to do with themselves and looking for other outlets, whether it's writing your own poetry or reading the poetry of others. I mean, that's a great, yeah. a great way just to kind of sit with either your own words or someone else's words. I, I I think we have a lot of awesome poets here. You made a great point. There's a lot of dope uh puerto rican female uh poets out there but do they get the 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 same platform as some of their male counterparts not even close so Mm -hmm. um the putting the effort into actually finding those those gems that are out there um i think that really helps open our mind a little bit you can only take so much of a man talking for so long and so you're like come on guys we need to like pass the mic here we need a bit (laughs) <laughs> let's expand this. Let's expand this net a bit more. It's not all about you. So um, I, I love poetry. So I'm glad that hopefully you get back on it again. Um, yeah. we'll but if anybody's listening and wants to see, you have them all archived on your Instagram. In your, your Insta- yeah. So. There are my highlights. And then speaking of Instagram, we're at the end of the interview. So I like to give my guests the opportunity to share how our listeners can keep up with them on social media, websites, throw it all out there. How can people keep up with you? Great ways to contact me are Instagram. That my handle is at vamos a ver, which is the Puerto Rican way of saying vamos a ver. It ends with an L and everything. Vamos a ver. Or you can search my name, Ali Arocho. My website is aliarocho.art. And there you'll see a little bio. You can subscribe to a newsletter. You can also buy my masks through my website. I've been working on a wonderful collaboration with an old Puerto Rican friend of mine. Well, she's not old, but we've been friends for a long time. She, um, (laughs) she makes these beautiful macrame wall hangings. And so we, uh, coordinated some macrame wall hangings with vejigante masks and uh, they look awesome. I'm really excited to share that. Um, so yeah, if you're, if you're looking for fun decor, that's also a conversation starter and that 
may pique your interest in Puerto Rican history, check check the Vejigantes out. Right on. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. We got to have you on again sometime. Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Ali Arrocho for coming on the show today. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate.